1: Alrighty then, let's get to it. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, wherever you are. Thanks for joining us on today's show, where you will learn about the man crisis, what misandry means for the future of education, politics, and culture. My first guest is Dr. Warren Farrell. He is the author of books published in 17 languages. Dr. Farrell is currently the chair of the commission to create a White House Council on Boys and Men. He is the only man in the United States to have been elected three times to the board of the National Organization for Women, also known as NOW, in New York City. And he has started more than 300 men's and women's groups, including ones joined by men from John Lennon to John Gray. And we're talking about his latest book, The Boy Crisis, why our boys are struggling and what we can do about it. Welcome Dr. Farrell. Thanks for joining us.
2: I'm looking forward to talking with you.
1: Yeah, let's let's just jump right in because you and I briefly chatted before we began and and agree that there really is a boy crisis out there.
2: There really is. And I began to see this about really when I was traveling for other books I was writing. And then um, I started hearing teachers come up to me in Japan and Australia and saying, you know, in my particular class, uh, the boys are having more problems than the girls. And then a U.N. study came out and that showed that in all 63 of the largest developed nations, uh, that boys were falling behind girls in every academic subject and uh, as a rule, and especially in reading and writing. And reading and writing, um, falling behind and reading and writing are the two biggest predictors of either a lack of success or if you're doing well in reading and writing a success. And then as I looked further, I saw that, that boys, uh, I saw I started looking at what what do developed nations have in common? And I saw what they had in common were two things, much more permission for divorce And much more permission for women to have children without being married. And so in the United States, for example, uh, 53% of women who are under 30 who have children have children without being married and that per se didn't seem like a problem to me except for the fact that the children the um that women who have children without being married in about 80 90 percent of the cases the fathers have minimal involvement with the children or no involvement with the children and then after divorce it is often the case that the the mothers choose to be the primary parent or the father and the mother choose to be the primary parent depending on the uh circumstance and when the child does not have a significant amount of father involvement those children had major problems In more i was able to identify when i did the research for the boy crisis in more than 70 different areas the children were having problems and i mean areas from depression to suicide Um, lack of father involvement was the single biggest predictor of suicide it's the single biggest predictor of an isis recruit the single biggest predictor of um a drug addict, an alcoholic, a gambler. And it's also the single biggest predictor of somebody who is likely to be a mass shooter in the schools or mass shooter outside of schools. And so um I then looked at the prison population and the prison population, aside from being 93% males, as I look more in depth at that, that was the, the males were more than 90% Likely to be raised either without any father involvement or minimal father involvement. So, I identified ultimately ten causes of the boy crisis, um, but began to see many more causes going back to uh, the lack of father involvement than any other single thing. And that's the bad news. The good news is that you know lack of father involvement can be solved by involving fathers. (laughs) So it's 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 you know perhaps. an analysis of the workplace that may have said 30 years ago that we really could benefit by women being more involved in the workplace. We know that could be solved by women being more involved in the workplace. And so, you know, we have a little bit of the, the story of what Gloria St- I used to be on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City as, as you've mentioned in the uh, intro and Gloria Steinem and I used to talk about, you know, fathers and mothers and men and women and etc. And she would say oftentimes, you know, what the world needs is more women in, at, in The workplace and more men and at home, and (laughs) indeed, she was right.
1: (laughs) Yes. Well, when we talk about the involvement of fathers, in in some cases, it's not possible for the father to be present. You know that the that the biological dad is not in the picture for choice or by choice or by circumstance. And really, is there a way to support our young men by having good, strong father figures?
2: Yes, father figures are not as potent as biological fathers, and I'll explain that a little bit, which is when a your son looks in the mirror and wonders who he is, he has some of the challenge if he doesn't have the biological father around that an adopted child has, that the adoptive parents May be extraordinarily um, helpful, emotionally intelligent, loving, and caring, but ultimately the son feels like my former wife adopted a, a child, and and you know a, a rancher came that said that on my ranch uh children uh the, the twelve ducklings had a parents that were killed and the a chicken raised the um the ducklings and one day the chicken and ducklings wandered down to the lake that they had on their property and the, the ducklings all jumped into the lake, and the chicken uh, just <laughs> absolutely berserk and as he was saying this my the adopted daughter of, uh, that my wife had adopted in a former marriage uh she spoke up and she said that 's what I feel like, I feel like I am a a, a duck raised by a chicken. And so many times um, children that look in the mirror and see that their body language is like their father's or or don't know their fathers very well and wonder how they are similar to and different, there's a real sense of not knowing who you are uh, that comes when you don't know your biological parents. And so and but In divorce situations, many children interpret when they don't have their dads that their biological father has left them or deserted them and abandoned them and they were rejected by him. And so they end up with enormous fears of abandonment and rejection. However, that all aside, if you've made and uh, one of the reasons that when I speak to fathers, biological fathers, that they do not get involved is feeling that their style of parenting, their tendency to roughhouse, their tendency to push Children outside of their comfort zones, their tendency to do tough love, their tendency to enforce boundaries in a way that mothers often feel is too, too tough. These are things that they don't feel rewarded for. And so they. They just stay away from getting more and more involved because they feel like they're a babysitter that's been punished, that's being punished for doing things the wrong way.
1: But hang on one sec. I want to ask a question about that because it's my understanding that it is that differentiation in parenting style, particularly the more rough housing approach that a father would have towards his son and possibly even his daughter that teaches them other qualities that mom might not be giving that child
2: that is precisely accurate. And so the first responsibility is on dads. Dads need to do their homework and understand that when they roughhouse, they teach their children how to distinguish between being assertive and aggressive. That roughhousing is highly correlated with children learning empathy. Now, no one in their right mind in a normal common sense connection would say roughhousing contributes to empathy. But dads need to know, A, that it does, but B, to be able to explain to moms why it does and how it does. So the average mom, for example, looking at a dad roughhousing is saying in her mind's eye, oh, my God, I feel like I have just one more child to monitor. (laughs) um, and then, you know, and then she says to herself, we you know, but on the other hand, you know, the kids seem to be having a great time, but, but I can see where this is going. Sooner or later, somebody's going to end up crying or somebody's going to hit their head. And, uh, because they're so excited, they're not paying attention to being careful. And is she right? About a hundred percent of the time she's right. And so then what appalls her even more is that. After the kids have hit their head and started crying, dad returns to roughhousing, which just tells her that, you know, he's, he is this child that I have to monitor. And I feel guilty that I didn't come in sooner before there was two people hit their head or there was, a, there was a, um, you know, tears or whatever. And so doesn't he get it? Is that, you know, her feeling toward him? And here's what dads don't explain and dads don't do their homework to learn. And, you know, one of the reasons I put it in the Boy Crisis book, 10 Different Ways like this, that dad's dad's parenting style and mom's parenting style, and why, just like you mentioned a minute ago, you need both parenting styles, and why children do so much better when they have a proper tension, what I call checks and balance parenting between the mother and the father. And then I'm going to get back to your original question, which is if we if there's no way to get the father involved, um, then what you know what can we do about that? So in terms of the understanding the roughhousing as an example, so dad will typically let's say there's three children and he just throws the three kids on the couch and the, the game is to to pin dad down uh, in a wrestling match before dad is able to pin all three of the two kids down together, and so they're all excited about you know jumping off and being the first one to get on his back and be the first one to get in the right position to be the kingpin of the wrestler, and so in the process of doing so um, they you know one of them uh, maybe Johnny. Pushes Jane aside and Jimmy pushes John aside. And then dad stops the roughhousing and says, uh, wait a minute you can roughhouse but you know Johnny I told you before um, you know some other time don't treat Jane that way it's not okay to elbow her out oh all right okay daddy we'll do, do and then they go back to the roughhousing again and then it happens again and dad says excuse me that's the end of roughhousing uh for tonight and we'll continue maybe tomorrow but if you go back to you know this um, not being considerate of each other's feelings uh or needs it's going to be the end of the roughhousing tomorrow night So now let's deconstruct what's happened here. What's happened is that as the kids were um, excited, they were experiencing what uh, the the challenge of potential emotional intelligence under fire yep. what psychologists call that mm-hmm. and they all agreed that they should think of the other sister or brother's feelings or needs but in the excitement of wanting to be the number one person and somebody else was getting getting there in the way of having them be the number one person they went into pushing and shoving mode so dad's first step in deconstructing this is he the, the rough housing creates a bond between the the dad and the children. And so when the dad enforce, uh, sets a boundary, the children don't feel rese- so resentful because they're learning the rules of the game to someone that they're bonded with and feeling connected to. And they know that they're gonna r- lose more roughhousing if they don't pay attention. The second thing that dad did was he said, he didn't just repeat, you can't, you, you must think of your brother or your sister. He told them the first time, you must think of your brother or sister. But then when they didn't, as predictably they wouldn't, they hit their head or they ended up crying. He let them experience the consequences. And then he enforced the boundary of ending the roughhousing for the night rather than repeating his admonition for them to not repeat, for them to not continue being ignorant of each other's feelings. So he's, he's required them to be empathetic with each other if they're going to get the reward of roughhousing that they want. He doesn't know he's done this. He just tends to unwittingly, most dads tend to just naturally sort of do this. He's also then teaching them when assertiveness becomes aggressiveness, not by lecturing to them. If he had stopped and just lectured that to them and then repeated that, he wouldn't have given them the experience. He would have given them an intellectual lecture. It was by, by telling them what to do and then telling them that there were going to be, there was going to be consequences that they didn't, he gave them an incentive to pay attention to John and Jimmy's or Jane's, um you know, uh, feelings. So that's one of the reasons why um, roughhousing is so, just as one example, is so connected to being able to distinguish uh, between assertiveness and aggressiveness, um, increasing one's empathy, and so on.
1: We're going to need to jump off to a break. But before we do, I want to give the contact information for Dr. Warren Farrell. To learn more, please visit warrenfarrell.com. On Facebook, you can find him at Dr. Warren Farrell. And on Twitter at Dr. Warren Farrell, the book we're talking about today is The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. Here comes the break. We'll be right back. And that is a promise.
0: To learn more about cultivating sustainable well-being at home and the office, visit HarvestingHappiness.com and explore Lisa's experiential on-site brain fitness workshops, corporate programming, and speaking engagement services.
1: Welcome back to Harvesting Happiness. I am talking with Dr. Warren Farrell about the man crisis, what misandry means for the future of education, politics, and culture. Let's return to the conversation. And Dr. Farrell, before the break, we had begun to delve into what happens if we are a single mom raising a son on our own, and how can we create an environment that supports our young boys holistically?
2: Absolutely. If in any, if it's at all possible in in a divorce situation, especially make sure there's four must do's are met. One is that there's an equal amount of time with mom and dad. Number two, that mom and dad live within about 20 minutes of each other. Number three, that there's no bad mouthing. And number four, that there's continued relationship counseling. If you cannot do that, then get your son involved with Cub Scouts get them involved with Boy Scouts, get them involved with Mankind Project, MKP, um, get them involved with a faith-based community or a faith-filled community, and make sure that you select that faith-based particular institution um, by vetting for a a male that is – both compassionate and a good role model for your son and one that gets together groups of other boys about your son's age so that one of the crucial things that happens for boys is being able to talk with each other because every boy, like most girls also, have masks and and they hide behind their masks. And while their girls can talk with other girls much more easily and with more permission than boys can, once a boy can see that his vulnerabilities are not just his vulnerabilities, that all boys share that. He begins to not feel so alienated, so disconnected, therefore doesn't leap into video game addiction or addiction to porn nearly as much as boys that do feel more isolated and alienated.
1: There was a documentary film, I think it was called The The Masks You Wear. The Mask We Live In. Yes, that really, I think, addresses this topic very well.
2: One of the people featured there, Ashanti Branch, is somebody that I do um, boy crisis workshops with.
1: In the case of my son, who is now in college, his dad and I divorced when he was 10. And one of the ways that we really maintained a lot of positive male influence upon him was, yes, he had relationship with his father, but he got involved with sports and he had great coaching and he had great mentoring and male models that stepped in and provided him a really good opportunity to see what being male in today's society looks like.
2: Very good. Yes, sports are really an important way. And there's really a few types of sports. We often think of sports as team sports only and team sports is particularly if you're if you a child does not have an active father figure. Is probably the best of the the, the three sports types of alternatives. Um, second, it's also important though to um, have encourage your son to be involved in a sport that's self starting uh, and maybe alone as well. Uh, so whether it's gymnastics or something that he can, uh, or weightlifting or you know wrestling, something that he has to do on his own is often very helpful. And third, uh, pick up team sports is also very helpful, where he has to make uh, decisions on his own about. Uh, who to get involved with and who not to get involved with and what are the boundaries of the court let's say in basketball and you know who is more likely to to be the person to pass off to and who will pass off to you and who's a team player who's an ego player and so on all those things are very good preparation for your son to be an entrepreneur um, so having all three of those types of sports under his belt as part of his um, training what you've really focused on is the coaches and a good male coach who's helping you learn how to win. And also, more importantly, the single biggest prerequisite to learning how to win is learning how to lose and lose gracefully and then lose and get back up and try again and to get outside of your comfort zones. These are really things that good coaches uh, and usually most males who are coaches do bring to the, the table for a son without a dad.
1: When we talk about raising our sons successfully today, and I think it's just raising all children <laughs> successfully today, but specifically with the boys and how it differs, uh, from the past. It used to be with boys, you know, you know, probably when we were both young, although we're from different generations, it was quite a long time ago where boys were just sent outside with their bikes and they'd, they'd go out and they'd, you know, come home for dinner and it worked, but it doesn't work today.
2: In the past, we basically, when I was doing the research for the boy crisis, I began to see this increasing difference between what was successful for boys in the past and versus what will be successful for boys in the future. And the main difference is that in the past, we trained boys for what I called heroic intelligence, which is really intelligence designed to be open to having a short life. Because you're encouraged mm-hmm. to be potentially disposable as a warrior at the age of 17, 18,
1: 19. Interesting. And,
2: and that's training to be disposable or training for a short life. And the incentive to do that is to be, you're you're given enormous numbers of social bribes. You will be a hero. You will be a warrior. You'll be respected. Women will fall in love with an officer and a gentleman, not a private and a pacifist. You're somebody that will bring dad and mom pride in your Marine uniform, et cetera. And this type of training we needed because we'd all be speaking German under Nazi rule if we didn't give our sons that training. But in the process, we gave mixed messages to our sons, which is on the one hand we want you to be willing to be disposable and serve your country. On the other hand, we want to be uh, we care about your safety. And so, but boys got a much more powerful message that we care more about your training to serve the country than especially in World War II. And, and but we increasingly have a need for fewer boys in, in war and fewer boys are needed for disposability. So there's a more mixed message for our sons. Second, we also learned that boys were trained to be disposable at work, that they should, you know, do all the hazardous jobs, that they should work 60, 70 hours a week to climb to the top of the ladder to get to some, to to be able to sell more products to more people and have more people that they supervise. And that was considered successful. But many boys and the stress of that created for many young men early deaths. And so, but we didn't really focus on those early deaths. And so, We had a complete lack of focus, not on heroic intelligence, but we had a complete lack of focus on health intelligence, which is socialization for a longer life. And it's also socialization for emotional intelligence, how to be uh, sensitive, caring, open, uh, reveal one's vulnerabilities. Boys learn not just, you know, you're a boy, don't cry, but also, you know, they saw the world and the world was filled with those men who were successful. They repressed feelings. They didn't express feelings. And so when they thought about opening up, they ended up learning how to close off in order to feel like they could take it. Uh, What they didn't learn is that men's weakness is their facade of strength and that when they close off who they are, they are becoming human doings, not human beings. And so I hope in the Boy Crisis book, I give the so many of the the structures that are so needed to help our sons become fully, full human beings, to be able to balance that sense of purpose from the past and teaching our sons how to tough it out when it's necessary and how not to be overly fearful. But on the other hand, where fear and where expressing feelings is functional, and how to talk that through. And one of the ways to do that is to know how to structure family dinner nights so that they don't become family dinner nightmares, so they're safe for everybody in the family, girl and boy and parents to talk with each other, how to train your children to listen to each other, uh, what to do if they won't get rid of electronics. And the moment they say they won't get rid of electronics, I know that the child is the parent and the parent is the child.
1: Um. (laughs) (laughs) That's a very interesting come to Jesus moment, right? The putting away of the electronics. (laughs) Indeed. I think back many years ago, I had taken my kids on their first river rafting and camping trip. They were quite young. And we had these waterproof bags and we opened the bags and the kids were like, what? You know, looking at looking at us. Cross-eyed. I'm like, what? It's for your phone. We're not going to give up our phones. Well, I said, you might consider giving up your phone because there is no service out there on that river and you want it to be safe and dry and it'll be returned to you when we get back. Begrudgingly, they gave up the phones and several days later at the end of that trip, they said, gosh, that was the best vacation we've ever had. You know, No phones, being in nature, relying upon each other, for our well-being and our entertainment, it's, it's quite something. Everybody should try it sometime.
2: Absolutely. Every mom can do is, and many dads naturally do do, is they don't, you know, if they make a decision that the kids are not going to have electronics at dinner, it's sort of like, that's not an option. You're not going to have electronics at dinner. Right. Oh, oh, you're you're whining and complaining. Thank you. I'll take that electronics away from you and you will get it back tomorrow night that type of consequence a small consequence but a firm consequence is very powerful oftentimes Moms and dads both set boundaries the same way. They both say, you can't have ice cream until you finish your peas. Um, kids test boundaries the same way. I had a few more peas, can I have my ice cream now? <laughs> um, <laughs> moms will tend to be more empathetic and say, gee, I'm not gonna get into a big fight over a few peas. All right, have two or three more peas, you, or five more peas, and then you have your ice cream. So the kid has three more peas, and then, and then mom says, I won't get into a fight, and then, all right, here's your ice cream. So kids learn with moms to a greater degree. I can manipulate a better deal if I just keep at it. Yes. And with dads, they're far more likely to say, excuse me, we have a deal here. The deal here is you can't have your ice cream until you finish your piece. And the kids go, oh, you're so mean. And dad goes, I can be mean tomorrow night too. If you want to continue whining, there'll be no ice cream tomorrow night either. And so eventually the kids learn with, uh, with their dads that they have to do what they have to do, that it, and that's the that is the beginning of postponed gratification, and postponed gratification is the single biggest predictor of success. And so the boy with the boy or girl without postponed gratification can't finish their homework and then they don't feel or they can't rehearse for sports or school play or piano and so they end up feeling badly about themselves because every dream they have is a dream that can't be fulfilled and then that shame starts leading them into withdrawal from other people who don't give them as much approval and you're, you're on the slippery slope of depression withdrawal into the video games and the porn and that type of thing.
1: Well, I do agree that this book is timely. Thank you for writing it. The book we're talking about is The Boy Crisis, Why Our Boys Are Struggling and What We Can Do About It. I really urge our listeners to visit WarrenFarrell.com, connect on Facebook at Dr. Warren Farrell or go to Twitter and engage at Dr. Warren Farrell. All right. We're going to sign off here for now. (laughs) It's wonderful talking with you. Likewise. Here comes that break. We'll be right back. And
0: that's a promise. Did you know that happiness is actually good for your health? Happy people live longer, are more productive, and make better partners, parents, and professionals. Connect with us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness. And follow Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen for a daily dose of inspiration.
1: the show if you're just joining us now i urge you to download and share this episode why because sharing is caring it's kind free legal available 24 7 and we're talking about the man crisis what misandry means for the future of education politics and our culture my next guest is dr paul nathanson who is a researcher in religious studies at mcgill university in montreal quebec who has defined the field of misandry in our culture. He is the author of several books co-authored with Catherine Young, including Spreading Misandry, The Teaching of Contempt for Men in Popular Culture, Legalizing Misandry from Public Shame to Systemic Discrimination Against Men, Replacing Misandry, A Revolutionary History of Men, and Sanctifying Misandry, Goddess Ideology and the Fall of man. He's here with me and I am really eager to have this discussion. Dr. Nathanson, let's talk for a little bit about the definition of misandry because many people out there might not know what that means.
3: Okay. I think that most people by now probably know what the word misogyny means, which is hatred toward women. Uh, Misandry is simply the sexist counterpart of misogyny. It's hatred toward men.
1: And when we look at what's going on in the political climate, within the media, I would argue that many people are demonstrating misandry.
3: Yes, I should add that misandry and misogyny coexist. I'm not trying to say that misogyny doesn't exist. I'm only trying to say that in addition to that, just below the radar of most people is this equivalent called misandry. Well, Catherine and I began our research about 30 years ago. And we noticed this and began writing about it. We found all sorts of evidence in in popular movies and romance novels and advertisements. And, you know, there's a lot of that stuff that nobody else seemed to have noticed. But that was 30 years ago. Now, it's gotten much more pervasive. And it's not only popular culture, it's in... Well, most notably in in legal changes that have taken place. And, you know, we've been talking for at least a year incessantly about the notion in a court of law and in a court, in the court of public opinion, we should simply believe women, whatever they say. Uh, now, that is a that's a, a profound change in legal thinking in which we presume the innocence of somebody who's accused and what I'm trying to say is that what was radical 30 years ago is now becoming mainstream.
1: Mm. When we look at the evolution of men and their role in society and this is something that I see in working with a mostly male clientele, young adult male clientele and I see such confusion in their lives, when I ask them about what it means to be a man in today's society, what role models they had, what would it look like for them to become a self-actualized male? And they're, they're challenged. They, they, there's, yeah. there's some hopelessness there.
3: Yes, yeah, that's quite true. And it shows up, by the way, in the statistics on high school dropouts, college dropouts among men, and suicide, for example, mm-hmm. and crime. So this is not just a psychological problem, it's, or at least it is that, but it's also a much deeper problem. I want to make sure that I say this. I think that to be self-realized or happy or content or whatever word you want to use, everybody, both as an individual and collectively, must have a healthy identity. And that must be based on some contribution that you can make to the larger world and a contribution must be distinctive, necessary, and publicly valued. Those yeah. three things. And if you cannot do that, if, if you cannot make that kind of contribution, if you cannot be have a distinctive function in the world, um, a necessary one, and in return be be deemed valuable by society, then you can't have a healthy identity. And as a result, well, some people drop out, Other people turn against society for having no room for them. It's a very urgent situation that we've got here.
1: I agree. And when we talk about how we raise our boys and how we raise our girls and the challenge for young men today, and I think men in general, men of any age, you know, when I talk to men who are of an older generation, you know, sometimes the comeback line is, well, you gals don't need us anymore.
3: Yes. (laughs) You know? Yes. That's a very interesting uh, comment, and I think that it's uh, that the message that goes out to men is, is precisely that, that there is no need from it, because women can do everything that men can do, although there's always one thing that women can do that men cannot do. I mean, women can protect themselves and provide for themselves, if not by themselves, but then with help from the state. So what is the function? What is the purpose of being a man? I mean, I can think of one thing that men can do that would have all three qualifications, which is fatherhood. However, we live at a time when fatherhood is routinely trivialized, misinterpreted. So even fatherhood is really in a... A very precarious situation, we have single motherhood by choice, we have gay marriage, which denies children either a father or a mother. We have routine trivialization and ridicule of fathers on t v in movies and in commercials, and as I say, also a misunderstanding because fatherhood is not the same as motherhood it's not doesn't mean playing with with the kids or doing the diapers. I mean, those are nice things to do, but that's not what fatherhood means. Fatherhood really becomes more and more important as children get older. It's not about infancy so much. The real need for a father comes when you enter the world and you need a a mentality that is based on respect for other people and a sense of responsibility. And these are things that Somebody has to teach children uh, as they grow up. And historically, it's been fathers who've done that. That's not to say that women couldn't do it. But the problem is that to be a mother means to give unconditional love. But to be a father doesn't mean unconditional love. It means earned respect. And those are two quite different things. And so if you have one person trying to give both messages, you end up with contradictions.
1: I want to uh, just go back to a couple of things that you said earlier in your response about women and government support, and also about gay marriage. Because it seems to me that marriage that promotes family and unity can send a good message of father and mother to a child, that it's not necessarily based on the gender of both parents. But I'm open to hearing what you have to say about that, because I'm curious at your response.
3: Well, I'm gay, but I don't support gay marriage. I support gay relationships, but not gay marriage because I think children need both a mother and a father.
1: So you think it's the traditional gender gender role of each parent?
3: No, it doesn't have to be a gender role exactly, certainly not in the stereotypical sense. I mean, the role the way mothers and fathers act across time and cultures has changed in many ways it it varies I'm not tied to one particular system I'm just saying that children need to see the difference and there is a difference between men and women and to do so in a way that involves respect Mm. so I don't think there I don't think mothers and fathers are interchangeable and I don't think men and women are interchangeable
1: I see I see. I I mean, it's a very different perspective. And and I'm open and I'm thinking about what you're saying, because in my view, it comes down to what provides a child the best model of unity, family, safety and good values.
3: Yeah, but those things in general, you could say, well, they're gender neutral, but not everything is gender neutral. And uh, I'm certainly not popular for saying that. But I think that it's true. I didn't want to come to that conclusion. I mean, I grew up being gay and it was tough. I bet. I I bet it was hard. I was having, I was suffering really. And I thought, well, the, if only men and women were the same, I would have no problem. And that view has become very popular. In fact, it's become the prevalent idea among some academics. The only problem is that it's not true. Yeah. And so, at some point, I began to realize that I'd have to rethink my own preconceived ideas and so this is where i've this is what i've come to i come to It wasn't easy for me to reach that conclusion, but that's the one I reached. <laughs>
1: Well, we're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to continue the conversation with Dr. Paul Nathanson to learn more about all of his books. I urge our listeners to head on over to Amazon.com, look up the work of Dr. Paul Nathanson and his co-author, Catherine Young. The book we're speaking of today specifically is Spreading Misandry, the Teaching of Contempt for Men in Popular Culture. Here comes the break. We'll be right back, and that is a promise.
0: Who says money can't buy happiness? Whether you are a skeptic or seeker, check out Lisa's new book, Are We Happy Yet? Eight Keys to Unlocking a Joyful Life, a boot camp manual for greater emotional fitness, is available at Barnes & Noble, Amazon, IndieBound, and HarvestingHappiness.com. Here's a truth bomb. Emotions are contagious, and happiness is a universally desired state. But we tend to forget that we all have the freedom to be happy or the liberty to be miserable each day, regardless of external circumstances. Explore the journey of human happiness, how to find it and keep it, with Lisa's documentary film, H-Factor. Where is your heart? Visit HarvestingHappiness.com to learn more.
1: back. I'm talking with Dr. Paul Nathanson about the man crisis, what misandry means for the future of education, politics, and culture. Let's get back to the conversation. I have Dr. Paul Nathanson with me, and we're talking about several of his books. And I'm going to have Dr. Nathanson go through each of the titles because they are different approaches to exploring misandry. So, Dr. Nathanson, please take it away.
3: Okay, well, spreading misandry is really about contempt for men. In popular culture, the idea of contempt, the teaching of contempt is an idea that I took from one of the uh, advisors to the Second Vatican Council. and He wrote a book called The Teaching of Contempt, which he referred to the teaching of anti-Semitism. Mm. It refers to a, not just in a case here and a case there. It's something that pervades society and is propagated from one generation to another. So we begin that book with, you know, jokes and uh, comic books and this sort of thing. Uh, and then each chapter gets, uh, gets a little deeper until by the end of the seven chapters, uh, we're down to uh, demonizing men. So the popular culture that, that sees men not merely as objects of ridicule, but as boogeymen, basically. Now, legalizing misandry has two sections. One of them is, continues what we began in spreading misandry, except that instead of popular culture, we're dealing with journalism and the way in which journalists have taken high profile news stories and manipulated them in ways that do the same thing as the, as the jokes and the demonization, namely, um, teaching contempt toward men. The second part of the book deals with the ways in which The law has been changed as a result. Now, then the next book, Replacing Misandry, and in that book, we talk about, we do a history of the male body, which is to say the ways in which people have perceived the male body and its ability to contribute to society. And we looked at that in connection with four or five major cultural revolutions over the past 12,000 years since the agricultural revolution, which uh, changed significantly the ways in which men and women contributed to society. And uh, then the industrial revolution, and there were several more. I just think that it's important to fill in the background, the historical background. We're not the idea that men in the remote past came up with a titanic conspiracy to oppress women. This is simply false there's a a history of the ways in which men and women have interacted, and conspiracy is not one of them.
1: (laughs) Although, would you agree that in certainly in, in North American history or Western European history that there has been an oppression or suppression of women in the past, much less so in contemporary society, but that women were not afforded the same rights and values as men?
3: I would disagree with that, actually. For in the first place, whatever rights are now seen as universal rights, and properly so, were not denied women out of um, hatred. It was not a matter of oppressing women. There were things that women had to do, and there were things that men had to do. And so society was organized in ways that uh, made those things possible. And the, the price for men, the, well, the the price that women paid was that they were basically attached in some way or other to the home and the family. And the price that men had to pay was their lives in times of war. And I think that there is a rough reciprocity. So if we're going to talk about the past from the perspective of the present, then you can say, yes, women didn't have some rights. Men also didn't have some rights. Both men and women paid prices. Nobody had it all. And I don't think that anyone can have it all, frankly.
1: I agree, actually. I don't think that anyone can have it all. And during the break, we were talking about this being a moral problem, whether it's misandry or misogyny, that it is an issue with morality.
3: I think that there is a, well, I know that there is a tendency to confuse revenge with justice because the whole notion of identity politics uh, is based on the idea that whatever is wrong is somebody's fault, somebody's evil, and therefore it's okay to do the same thing to them in return. Now, that's not justice as we have understood it in the past. That is revenge. And if you can't tell the difference between revenge and justice, then I would say that our civilization is pretty well bankrupt because that's a pretty basic moral principle.
1: I agree. Let's talk a little bit about the, the- difference between anger versus hatred
3: okay well anger is an emotion and we all get angry that's a universal fact of the human condition but it tends to be transient you know somebody says the wrong thing or does the wrong thing and sometimes very very bad things and you get angry but hatred is quite different hatred is a culturally propagated worldview it's not something that has necessarily happened to a uh, result of something that happened to you as an individual. It's the result of a whole community passing on from one generation to the next uh, deliberately hostility toward a group. I hope I've been clear about the difference there. Yes, yes. It's not a transient emotion. It's not an emotion at all. Yeah. It's a worldview. view.
1: And we certainly have a lot of it today. And it's uh, very disturbing to me. I mean, I'm a mother. I'm a mother of a young woman and a young man. And uh, it concerns me. It concerns me that the world that they will inherit is something that maybe touched our lives in our generation, but certainly not to the degree that it's prevalent today. It's gotten worse, not better.
3: Well, yes, as I say, things that were considered radical 30 years ago are now going mainstream. That's the disturbing thing. I should say, to be fair here, as I've said before, it's not only mis- misandry, it's also misogyny. Yes. These two things are operating together, and whether the mouthpiece of misogyny uh, is the president or somebody else, it's a problem. I mean, I'm not trying to deny that it's a problem. What I'm trying to deny is that the solution to that problem is simply to turn it turn it on the reverse yeah. and, and hate the other side. Hatred is not an answer.
1: What I also see is this is based in fear. It's a fear-based response. You know, we, we feel uncomfortable and it's easy to disparage and put down and hold contempt for the other, Rather than try and see where there is the common ground or where there is the synergy, you know, in the dance, I do those things that I'm good at that are comfortable for me and feel natural. And you do the, your, your things and your strengths. And together we come together and we're greater as a unit.
3: Well, yes. I mean, you can't have a society at all unless most people have some function, respected function. Yes
1: respected function. I, I like that. And I do see that this is the uh, dilemma, particularly with the young men. I mean, I do see it in the young women who I work with, but the, the young men are the ones that are having a hard time because they just don't know what to do. They don't know what it means to be a man. They know that they're men, but they don't know what it means or what they should do next. Well, as
3: you say, I think there is an element of fear yes. on both sides, but you know, fear is something that that could also be taught. Uh, we have to teach, there was an old song in South Pacific, the musical, you have to be, what was it now it was called, now you have to be taught to hate and fear. Yeah. And I think that that is a real, that that's really cuts right to the heart of this issue. People are being taught to hate and people are being taught to fear. I mean, why would any man in his right mind have anything to do with women?
1: Well, <laughs> I can think of a lot of reasons. I'll, I mean, women aren't, we aren't that bad. You know I there are plenty of but us the,
3: yes, but you see the what you have being played out in the public square is a scenario in which every man is the potential target of allegations, and therefore that they learn correctly, I think, to be afraid.
1: Yes, yes, well, I think it's it's about power also, that perhaps women are being given the message that that their power lies in their ability. To accuse, and I mean that may sound you know horrible to some people,
3: but well, it is power. You're quite right. That is power. I would say they're misusing power.
1: Yes, I mean there there are some women who bad things have happened to them. They have never spoken of those things. And it does need to be given a voice. I I think that happens quite often. And then it also happens where you have got women who are accusing men of doing things that they have not done. And it has the ability to destroy their lives.
3: And then there's also the question, however, of precisely what the accusation is. Now, if you're talking about rape, that's one thing. If you're talking about a man who makes a lewd joke or is vulgar or in some other way offensive. That's not the same as rape. I refuse to see that that is a form of rape.
1: I agree. I had an incident when I was a young girl. I um, My original studies were in architecture and I went to, to college in Boston for undergrad. And I remember I worked for a real estate developer as his assistant. And one day... The guy pins me down on the floor. I mean, I must have been 18 years old or something. I said, what are you doing? Like, I didn't think of it anything other than this is just ridiculous. You need to stop and let me out of here. And I continued working for him because I just, I thought it was so silly. Like, now, if I, you know, fast forward to today's society, that would be seen as an assault.
3: Well, what you described does sound like an assault. I mean, that's, that's at the more extreme end of the continuum between triviality and physical violence. Physical violence is something, that is a problem. That is, no woman should have, or no man for that matter. Nobody should have have to do do
1: that, but people do silly things, you know?
3: Uh, But the level of silliness, I mean, some of the kind, some of the accusations that I heard really really bordered on the trivial. And the message to women, I think, was a kind of infantilization. They should be uh, not only afraid of men, but afraid of the slightest hint of inappropriate activity and take action. And it's like using an atomic bomb to kill a fly. Yeah. Not everything. I mean, women should be able to pick themselves up and after a lewd remark, and get on with it, which is not the same thing as rape.
1: Agreed. But, you know, here's the thing. I think we're devoid of critical thinking. I think that that is the biggest challenge that we have in, in raising these kids today, is how do we teach them critical thinking in these areas, which have more than 50 shades of gray, their subtlety?
3: Well, yes. I mean, thinking of it historically, I mean, I can't think of a subject that is more Laced through and through with ambiguity and uncertainty and mixed signals, and, and, you know, then romance or relations between men and women or sex. I mean, it's notorious for being ambiguous and therefore it's the subject of countless uh, stories and uh, poems and movies precisely because of that. It's not, it's not easy. You have to be mature to be able to negotiate. Um, the world of sex and romance, and then so we <laughs> had this seismic upheaval called the sexual revolution in the '60s, and suddenly, because of the because of the, of the pill, of course, and suddenly everybody thought, well, women and men are, are identical, and therefore they have the same needs and the same urges, and should have the same standard applied. Trouble is that uh, after a few about uh, twenty years, women began to say, well, you know what. This isn't working for us. <laughs> we don't have the same urges as men, or at least not the same kind of urges. And we need more rules. And so then you have this development of puritanical codes of sexual correctness. And, you know, may I touch your arm, may I touch your elbow. Now, that, I mean, not what even our Victorian grandparents and great-grandparents would, would have found that kind of off-putting, I think. It's the idea that if you can't deal with a problem as a mature adult, then you have to have some kind of legal mechanism to govern it and make sure that nobody gets out of line. So I think that that happened on college campuses over the past 20 years. but And it got more and more radical until, as I say, it went mainstream. <laughs>
1: Well, how do we create healthy and positive identity in people, in men and women, within all genders? How do we support that? What is the answer?
3: Well, look, you know, people often ask me that. I've been on interview shows, and people always ask me uh, if I had if I had a simple solution, I'd have a Nobel Prize. You would.
1: (laughs) Uh, I think it's like
3: very complex. It is complex. I think that one place that we need to start. But every society has always needed to start is bringing up children in families in which the mother and father have a healthy relationship. If you don't start there in early childhood, being examples of how to respect how men and women can respect each other, then it's much harder as an adult. You can't just read a book or take a course on gender one on one and suddenly learn how to do these things. There has to be a larger context.
1: Well, and that also taps into emotional and social intelligence. You know, how are we teaching people to deal with emotion, to deal with civility, to understand between right and wrong, you know, and what to do when there is a dilemma, you know, to to not be reactive uh, from a place of fear, anger and hatred, but to use one's mind.
3: Yes. Well, I mean, to put it bluntly, I think that uh, we have to all grow up. And that means taking responsibility for yourself within limits. I mean, I don't expect people to take responsibility when somebody physically attacks them. But within the larger context of everyday life, I think that men and women can and should respect each other.
1: Well, the growing up is also a challenge for us when every image that we see in the media is highlighting, praising, and rewarding leaders that are not grown-ups, that we're electing them, we're putting
3: them there. Yes, there's that. You know, and that's the problem. That is a, a one big problem. And the the kind of circus scenario that played out over Kavanaugh v. Ford mm. was um, a really disturbing, I mean, I live in Canada, and I uh, looked at it from a slighter, greater distance uh, than you did, but basically that was all the, the all the news that we heard, unless there was a tornado. And it was very disturbing to see grown men and women acting that way. I mean, women were insisting that they be believed by anybody, by for any reason, just because they were women. I mean, this this idea that belief plays an important part in public life that really comes close to step to. Demolishing the role, the wall between church and state. Belief is about religion. That has no place in law, uh, or even frankly, in the court of public opinion. Well, you know, we, I think we should ex- be able to expect that people are innocent until proven guilty, either in a court of law or in the court of public opinion. So we have that spectacle going on. And what you have to ask yourself, what does that teach people? Yeah.
1: Complicated times that we're living in. We are out of time. I want to send the listeners once again to learn further about the books and work of Dr. Paul Nathanson and his co-author, Catherine Young. Please visit Amazon.com. The books we've been talking about today are Spreading Misandry, Legalizing Misandry, Replacing Misandry, Sanctifying Misandry. And there are subtitles of that. I just gave the, the the main titles to be brief, but Amazon.com, Dr. Paul Nathanson, and co-author Catherine Young. Dr. Nathanson, thanks for joining us on the show.
3: Thank you very much for having me.
1: A pleasure. Thanks for joining us on Harvesting Happiness. This is Lisa Cypress-Kamen and my guests today, Dr. Warren Farrell and Dr. Paul Nathanson, wishing you kind thoughts, kinder words, and the kindest of actions. Until next time, remember, happiness is an inside job. Happiness is your inside job. Go out and rock your day.
0: Keep harvesting your own happiness anytime and anywhere from the comfort of wherever you are. Subscribe, listen, and share hundreds of downloadable episodes via our free app or from our libraries at toginet.com, iTunes, Google Play, and other fine podcast platforms. To learn more about Lisa's global consulting services, please visit harvestinghappiness.com. Spread more joy by liking us on Facebook at Harvesting Happiness and following Lisa on Twitter at Lisa Kamen. Harvesting Happiness is produced in collaboration with Toginet Radio, kbuuradiomalibu.net, and is available on PRX, the public radio exchange.